This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. A few months ago, I read a fantastic novel by Zen master Anita Fang, a teacher at the Blue Heron Zen Center in Washington State. I spoke to her about her novel, Sid, which tells two simultaneous stories of the historical Shakyamuni Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, and a contemporary man also named Sid. I love the book, and I love my chat with Anita Fang. So a day or so after that chat, I sent in a review for that book on Goodreads, and I received a message later on from another novelist who also dabbles in works of Buddhist fiction. We chatted about our shared appreciation for Anita Feng's novel, and he mentioned that he is himself a novelist touching on Buddhism and its teachings. So he's my guest today. So Hugo Bernard is the author of the new novel, Naked Monk. This conversation goes into the core Buddhist teachings of diligence, the Eightfold Path, some thoughts on death, and the power of fiction writing as a way to discuss ideas outside of the realm of overly academic work. Without further delay, here is my conversation with novelist Hugo Bernard, author of Naked Monk who spoke to me from his home in Quebec City, Canada. I'm here today with novelist Hugo Bernard, author of the brand new novel, Naked Monk, out now. Hugo, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hello, thanks. Thanks, Greg. So I know that uh, we're going to have a little reading today. So if you can go ahead and start off with your chosen passage from Naked Monk, I think that will help the audience get a sense of some of your work. Yeah, sure. So I chose a passage from Chapter 4, which stands alone uh, quite well. The monk stayed silent as the middle monk watched the youngest monk fill his cup. The middle monk watched... The middle monk enjoyed how the tea flowed from the kettle with a strong, high arch. That was one of the reasons he had stolen it. He had taken it the day the master monk kicked him out of the monastery. On that dreadful day, he entered the master's meditation room and sat on the empty cushion placed in front of his teacher, then bowed his head to the floor. The master poured steaming tea and they sipped silently, enjoying the spring floral scent emanating from a cup. The middle monk or Monk Len at the time, initiated the conversation. Master, you have asked to see me. Len, we appreciate you very much, he said. You have been instrumental in maintaining and building this monastery. Your selfless devotion to this work has been more than commandable. It is a pleasure to be of service to the community. That is why this is so difficult, said the master, looking at him squarely. Len, I am sorry, but you will no longer be part of this community. We must ask you to leave. I must leave? Please gather your things tonight. You are to leave at once. I am sorry, Len, but I truly believe it will be for your own good. That was not an easy thing for him to that was an easy thing for him to say, for his own good. Being kicked out did not surprise him but he had not expected that it would happen in such a dull manner. During sleepless nights, he had imagined himself being kicked out by a giant golden Buddha thrice his own size. The Buddha would grab him by the ear and drag him to the monastery's edge and say without a hint of judgment in his voice, stop this misery and go enjoy yourself. With a magical kick from the golden bare foot, the monk was sent flying through the clouds to land moments later cuddled in one of his mistress's beds. It felt like the Buddha was acting kindly, but now, from his teacher, it felt cruel. Why must you do this? 
must I really explain myself? Looking at the monk, the monk wanted an answer. Monks cannot go out freely roaming at night, sleeping with wives and daughters. Is it, it is against the teachings. I have been here since I was a boy, master, always working when needed and carefully learning the teachings. It is not enough to learn. You must bring the teaching into your life. You must have a desire to be a monk. The others are no better, said Len, knowing that he must go, but hoping that he could delay it a little longer. The others do have their vices. We all do. But once they have acted wrongly, they suffer the turmoil of their weaknesses. You do not regret anything. You enjoy it. Yes, he enjoyed it. Immensely so. But this was not the real reason he was being kicked out. It couldn't be. The master was not speaking truthfully. What about the time Nun Macy had stayed the night with their community on the way to a pilgrimage? He remembered it clearly, the way his teacher had looked at her. Not at her, not at her body, that was concealed under an ample robe, but at her lips and the mysteries that lay within. She too felt attracted by the master's warmth, unable to conceal a slight pink that arose on her pale cheeks. The other monks hadn't noticed anything. They were too naive, blinded by their teacher's charisma, unable or unwilling to imagine that their teachers could fall under the spell of sexual attraction. But they were wrong, not about the authenticity of their teachers. No, in that regard they were similar, committed to their sangha, practicing faithfully. It wasn't her lips that had attracted him, but the purity and devotion that flowed within her. Similarly, she had looked at him, allured by his wisdom, the peace that flowed when he spoke. They were mutually attracted by what they most loved and worshipped. Their bodies wanted to be embraced by their own ideal, to explore it in the flesh. That night, Lan had another sleepless night. He heard the slight squeaking of the monastery's wooden floors. He was happy for his teacher. It would not be a superficial encounter like his own, but the unity of two great souls rejoicing in virtue. The next day, the nuns left before sunrise. Lan and his teacher went to the garden to plant the flower bulbs the nuns had left as a gift. He had spent 20 years in the monastery, and never had he heard his teacher hum. It was an unremorseful hum. And that was why he did not believe that his lack of regret was the true reason for his dismissal. There was something else. It must be because of what had happened the other night in Prince Abdel's palace. So that's what I chose as a introduction to this uh, naked monk. That was beautiful, Hugo. Thank you so much for reading that passage. We'll come back to some of the themes that you just touched on within that passage, I'm sure, as some examples throughout our conversation today. But let's kind of go back a little bit. So how do you see yourself as a fiction writer? Well, I've been writing fiction, uh, like many people, since they're little. Since uh, when I was a young boy, my brother and father would play video games, and I would go on the Commodore 64 and so this is giving an idea of my age, and I would try to figure out the word processor and write stories on the, on WordPerfect back then. And uh, so I always liked fiction. And at one point, I started to leave fiction for a more factual. So I, I see this duality between fiction and facts. And for a, a part of my life, I went to facts. I started studying. I have a degree in mathematics. Uh, I studied physics at university also. I was signed up to scientific magazines and I was reading science magazines and reading political papers. And I was all into these facts. And then I started to realize again, and I, I, I wrote fiction for pleasure, short stories, and uh, sub tried submitting several short stories. Um, and then with, with time working, I work in academics and I noticed that all these facts, the facts are so, cause so much, um, people argue around facts. 
people with this same facts, people infer so many different conclusions. And, and when you're in academics, or when you're at university, all you're doing is arguing over facts. What do they actually mean? And I got a bit tired of this, and I was, I wanted to go back to fiction, using fiction as an experiment, using fiction to do as a science almost, because you can use fiction to um, to test your your view, your perspective of life. And so I've always, in high school, I wrote, several, every time I had an assignment, I would write short stories on uh, Buddhist themes. Uh, and I've always kept that. And now, with time, I've slowly left facts to go near closer to fiction. To, I've been drawn to fiction. So, so how did you find Buddhism? Buddhism was with Alan Watts. I was in high school. Um, uh, in high school, uh, my father was, a, it's a dramatic, my, I come from a Christian family. We went to church every Sunday. Uh, very Christian family. Uh, my father was sick of cancer, and I didn't find any comfort in the Christian religion. Some people do. I like. I am open to all religions. And I fell on a book by uh, Alan Watts called The Way of the Zen. And I felt that this comfort comforted me. And so I, I started reading more and more Zen uh, books, and then I started going into other Tibetan Buddhism and other Buddhisms. And now I pretty much read the Pali Canon. Uh, so, but I've always explored all the religions uh, from uh, all Buddhist Sufism. And, but I, the one I always return to when I struggle in life or when I have questions, I always return to the Pali Canon. Excellent. So, when you write your fiction, you write mostly Buddhist fiction, right? Like, this is how you and I came to meet, because um, you saw that I had read Sid by um, Zen master Anita Feng. And then you reached out to me, and we started talking a little bit about your own work. So you work specifically within a Buddhist fiction lens, right? I do. I, I read a book. I don't know if you know the book by Shusaku Endo. Shusaku Endo wrote a book called Silence, which is about um, a missionary. It's not Buddhist. It's actually, well, there's a bit of Buddhism in it, but it's mostly Christian. And it's about a Portuguese uh, missionary who sneaks into, in the, I think it's the 18th century, in, onto J on the island of J Japan to help uh, spread Christianity. But at that period of time, the Japanese were very... Uh, they tortured the Christians when they caught them. And so this book by Shasuku Endo is actually the story of a missionary who is caught by the, by the Japanese and then endures torture and struggles with his faith in, in, um, through the torturer, seeing how much, you know, how strong his faith is. And this is actually probably the the most important book for me in in literature because it, it's like a test. He took the his own belief because he is Christian, uh, Mr. Endo, and he tested it against torture and see what how will you react and how will your faith come to you, to the rescue or how will you react with your faith in tough situations. And so, I read Buddhism. But sometimes you wonder, in real life, how will I react with, how will I use these tools that I read in the Pelican and I'm in my bed and I read uh, the Dhamma, uh, Dhammapada or if I read any other Christian, uh, Buddhist texts, how will I actually use this in a tough situation? Maybe on my day-to-day, day-to-day, uh, -day, I don't need all this text or I don't know how I, I, I can actually apply this. So that's how I like Shusaku Endo, is that he used, he takes his faith and then he tests it through fiction. He sees how he will react in really tough situations. Though so that's a bit what I wanted to do with the, 
the Buddhism. I'm trying to see using fiction as a testing ground for what I'm understanding. I'm not a monk. I'm not a Buddhist scholar. I'm a layperson. But as a layperson, I still want to understand the deeper meaning in all this, all this work. And I think a problem here comes back to the fact versus fiction is that a lot of people rationalize so much what you're learning. You read all these fascinating, like Alan Watts is very intellectual as a reading, but then how do you actually use this in the real life? So fiction allows us to simulate worlds and where we can test how we would react or how characters with a certain uh, beliefs would react. And then we can maybe through this have a deeper understanding of what the teaching is, not as a actual like fact, but more through experience. So I try to experience things through fiction and hopefully bring readers to experience things through fiction. That's why I like doing the Buddhism, because I think right now I read lots of Buddhism. I enjoy reading all this rational Buddhist stuff, but then we get so lost. I'm, with, I'm in forums with Buddhists and I see the arguments that spark all the time on this is the right interpretation, this is the wrong interpretation of these texts and these texts. And I'm like, well, what does it matter? What matters is how you'll actually apply it and how it'll benefit your life or how you will react or reduce your suffering in life. It doesn't matter what your interpretation is. It matters how you're going to apply it. So I try to test these things in fiction or try to understand them better in fiction. So I can see that coming out a lot in your brand new book, um, Naked Monk, which mm-hmm. I just finished reading and I really enjoyed it. And one of the things that I noticed is that you have these three characters that the book follows who all go through these varying stages and challenges in their life that they have to respond to challenges based on the, the teachings that they are adhering to. So I can see that coming out in your book. And so... Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the book, and you've already done a little bit of a reading from it, so re- uh, listeners can have a sense of how the book sounds and how the book flows and what kind of challenges that the characters face. So imagine that you and I get into an elevator, and we're going up about 80 floors in an elevator. How do you describe the book to somebody in that elevator ride? Uh, we need to go up and down the elevator. For Sweet. Impact. Let's do it. So <laughs> so I'll give you 160 floors. We'll double the length. So we'll go all the way to the top, and then we'll go all the way back down. Well, this is the story of... Naked Monk is the story of three men. I like to say it's a story of three men and not three monks, because they are men before becoming monk. Uh, monks. A story of three m- men, monks, who are struggling in their lives for different reasons. And things get a bit more complex when they unwittingly release a god from an ancient curse. So they release this god and this god to thank the monks for releasing him, give each monk uh, the virtue of their choice. So each, we can imagine what I would choose. Would you want to choose perfect mindfulness? Would you want to choose perfect forgiveness? Perfect, which virtue would we choose? And then we, the, the god is not done with these monks because he wants to test the, uh, each monk to see if uh, his vows towards uh, his monk, his monk vows are strong. And so that's where the story starts off. That's pretty much the beginning of the story. And we explore these challenges and their past, what brings these challenges from their past lives and what made them become monks. It's a difficult story to to explain in on 80 floors because it's not linear in any sense. I tried to write a novel that's timeless in a sense that we go into past lives, we go from future to past and in between all around like we're it's not chronological at all, but it seems to have worked. That was the difficult part to make sure that it is understandable and that there's a certain flow. And there is a flow. It works nicely from uh, the feedback I've, I've received. Uh, so that's the story that I can give in a short... I promised myself that the next novel I write will have a easier pitch 
than this book. This book is <laughs> always hard to pitch. Yeah. So <laughs> with, a, with, with a main protagonist that has one challenge and that must face his one challenge. This book has several several characters that I try not to have one that's more important. I'm sure there's the naked monk who stands out at the end. Um, but it's it's not common, but I think it's enjoyable read nonetheless. So let's talk about one specific theme. And part one of your novel is called Diligence as the heading for that section. And you follow that with a well-known vignette from the moment of the Buddha's enlightenment where he was able to see past his own desires and be unbothered by the beautiful daughters of Mara. So diligence is an important virtue for you in this book. So why did you call the first chapter diligence? What does that mean to you? Actually, this this novel started as a short story. I start well, like many novels start as short stories. I was watching the news and I was seeing all the news about, uh, well, there's more. This was four years ago, but it's always the same news. Whenever we watch the news, there's always a sex scandal. Yeah. So I was watching the news and there was sex scandals on, on the news. And I have three boys. And so I was like, what do I, what do we need to teach my three boys? What, what education do they need for them to not get in trouble, <laughs> not cause harm, not cause uh, problems sexually when they're older. They're still young, so they, they're, they're not allowed to read this book yet, and uh, they speak French, but they do read a bit of English. Um, so I want, and I think what it, I, I came to the conclusion, I was reading the Buddhist, uh, the Pali Canon, and I came to diligence. And I was like, wow, we don't hear about diligence very much. And there's, in the Dhammapada, there's a quote that says, Fools indulge in negligence. The wise guard diligence as the ultimate treasure. So when we think about Buddhism, if you ask most people, what, what, do you, what is a virtue of Buddhism? You'll say compassion. You'll say mindfulness. But how many people will say diligence? I actually did the test to over 50 people. And nobody said diligence. But it's the greatest treasure, according to the Dhammapada. So I wanted to explore how diligence is actually useful. A bit, like I said, in a shusaku endo type of way, by testing it in tough situations in this novel. Um, Yeah. So that's what I tried doing. And so diligence is a question of making an effort for all these other things, right? Uh, Diligence is to be on guard. You have to be on guard all the time on your behaviors you have to be aware of your behaviors so i'm sure we're going to talk about a bit more this a bit more but diligence i think is like they say it's the greatest treasure because it's the first one you have to be on guard first of all you have to be diligent in your actions so the passage that you read earlier what would you say is some of the tie-in with diligence from the specific passage that you read well I think it helps make the contrast too with the other characters, which we didn't we didn't see. So, in the passage I I read, we have the character whose name is Len, where we see he might lack a bit of diligence. He has a bit of, a, from what we understand from the passage, he has a bit of a free for all life. Uh, he enjoys mistresses and going out at night. And he enjoys himself. So he lacks a bit of diligence. I think it, the reason that character is there is in contrast. But what I tried to do in the novel also is not to have any judgment. I didn't want to judge who was doing the rightful thing and who was doing the wrong thing. I was just trying to expose different characters at different levels of uh, behaviors. And the reader is the one who could decide who has a good behavior and who doesn't have a good behavior, what leads to uh, bad outcomes or suffering and what doesn't. I, I tried to be, and I think it worked out, non-judgmental or not, you know, uh, I didn't try to say uh, prescribe the rightful path in this novel. Gotcha. Um, so I'm a high school teacher, as I've mentioned to you before, and I teach a class on religion where I do 
an introduction to Buddhism, and we talk a lot about the Eightfold Path. So many of the moments in the book, to me, captured aspects of the Eightfold Path. And so your opening line, to me, captures so many aspects of, like, seductiveness or things that cause us to, like, miss our lives or things that are helpful. And you wrote, A wonderfully dangerous force lurks within us all bringing misery, love, or total emancipation. So what does this line mean to you as like a hook for the novel? I think it captures quite well the novel in itself, the whole story of the novel, right? The wonderfully dangerous force lurks within us all. We have this, in Buddhism, sensual desires are central to everything in all the sutra it's like the biggest challenge is sensual desires we see it in the news every day more and more so that we have this wonderful force but again there's no judgment in the first line also we see that it's it could bring misery it could bring love or it can bring total emancipation so i think that i i like that phrase in that it in that sentence as it doesn't Again, there's no judgment, and it shows that it, it could be good. It's not black or white. It's the whole, it's so much more complex than black or white. I, and I love the contrast of wonderfully and, the, and dangerous. It's just such a nice contrast, how things can be so wonderful, this force can be so wonderful that lurks within us, and it can be so dangerous all at the same time. Exactly, and that's where diligence, that's why the title is Diligence, also the first part, because you need to be diligent to not fall from the wonderful to the dangerous yeah and the key to not fall into the dangerous is diligence so another another thing that i notice in the book is a lot of like obsessiveness with ideas so like whenever i think of like parts of the eightfold path i think of right concentration effort intention and view in the eightfold path and so i think of like the ways in which human thoughts and ideas about uh, what is real engulf us? Like we obsess on being right or wrong so often, and it's only like obsessive ideas, not necessarily reality, the like creative version of what is real because it's an individual's truth, even if it's nobody else's truth. So, right. yeah, so you have a line in the book that says, You are wrong. Your mind has created these illusions. Are they from a sickness or a curse? Those lines really spoke to me about like versions of reality and how we can never truly get everyone on the same page, and how that inability creates suffering. So, Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about obsessiveness within the novel, and how it plagues your characters? Well, I can talk about how obsessiveness plagues everybody. Yeah, yeah, go for it. (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, I'm always happy to see lines that people, uh, that, that, strike a chord with people and uh, so that's interesting oh, that yes. you raised that, that one um, there is an obsessiveness on being right and wrong uh, especially nowadays on Facebook and on uh, on Twitter where arguments are spark every second on being right and wrong it could be even in Buddhist forums like I was saying people have argue about what is right and wrong uh, interpretation of the rightful path Again, one of the reasons there are I have three monk and three men is because I want to see the whole spectrum. There's not one right and not one wrong answer in all this. For the rightful path, there's some sutras that give a prescription on what is rightful and what is wrongful. But one of my favorite sutras uh, from the Middle Discourse doesn't tell you what what is right and what is wrong other than saying that to know what the rightful path is you do or you say something and if it makes you if it harms someone else it if it harms yourself if it makes you feel poorly if it makes somebody else feel poorly then that is the that is not rightful speaking but they don't say what these rightful the rightful uh speech is you must discover it for yourself and that's a bit the idea of fiction again we're trying to discover things through these characters what is the rightful action what is the wrong wrong action and again i don't want to prescribe it it's not for me to say what's right and wrong 
but for readers to to try to make out, understand according to their understanding, according to your understanding, according to your students' understanding of what is rightful, and then to try to make sense of it. But I think a, a, a big problem is people are stuck on ideas and aren't listening. You know, that's what mindfulness is. People, if you're mindful, you're aware of reactions that are happening from your actions. And then we can escape our obsessiveness. Obsessiveness is when it's stuck in rationale, rationality. And if you get out of rationality and you enter mindfulness, and that's a bit what I tried doing in this novel again, you could discover things, what is the rightful path? You, it's interesting that you, you find many uh, links with the Eightfold Path in this novel because nowhere in the novel, I was very careful, there's a character called Lady B who gives a speech about uh, doing rightful actions, saying rightful things, but never is it said anywhere what these rightful actions are or what is the rightful act or what is the rightful uh, intention. I try to stay away from any prescription and I think that's the way to get out of obsessiveness, being right and wrong, is by discovering through mindfulness or through personal awareness what happens when we do certain actions. I don't know if that's clear. Yeah, well, and what's really interesting is, is as I was watching the characters, and so now now that you're saying these things, I'm really picking up on a lot of like um, things in the book that I was curious about or was struggling with. And because as a reader, I want to project onto the characters what they should do. And, and that's what you should do as a reader. I think that's, that's the freedom of fiction, is that yeah. <clears throat> I write something with a certain intention, but that's the intention is I'm writing and I'm trying to understand things as I'm writing. And then I hope that the reader, there's no right, according to me, there's no right and wrong way of reading the story. And everybody will have their own interpretation. And that's the beautiful thing about fiction, as opposed to my academic writing. Sure. Where there's one way to write, you know, you have to understand what I'm writing here or it's not going to work. But for fiction, everybody's free and can actually progress whichever way they want. So in the book, you tackle several moments of sex scandal. And I know that you watched earlier about like seeing sex scandal on the news. And you've also and we also talked a little bit earlier about how the Buddha was tempted by Mara's daughters with sex. And so there is some sexiness to the novel. So how do you see the role of sex in the Buddhist path? And that answer can go anyone of any directions. Well, obviously, I'm not against sex. I have three boys. So, <laughs> yeah, that, you know, and again, I tried not to make any judgment in the. I, I wanted, I wanted to be very clear that there's no judgment in in the story. I, the characters, I think, I don't know about you, but there's a way you can actually like all the characters. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Even the evil god, I think, is likable in some sense. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe not. Absolutely. But I like, I, agree. I, I like, I like all the characters, and they each have different. Um, problems with sexuality or lack of diligence regarding sexuality and like I said early sexual sexual um, desires or sexual uh, yeah sexual desire sensual desires are key are always always in the sutras as one of the greatest obstacles why because it has as soon as you lose your diligence and you let yourself be carried away in these desires they grab hold of you they can like bring you farther and farther and it could go into really what we see on the news right mm -hmm. and not just it could it happens uh, we know all the stories of what could happen by losing control of sexual desires so i think that's why the buddhism it's so important to master that one uh, sensual desire that, that the Buddhism puts so much focus on it for some reason. It's not just the Buddhism. All the religions have put so much focus on trying to control this desire that, as humans, we have that is extremely strong and wonderfully dangerous force that lurks within us all. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's why I think it's important everywhere and trying to understand it. And like I said, I wrote it for my boys because you're like, what What do we actually teach the boys? We can tell them. See, I'm during my day job, I'm a behavioral economist. 
And what we teach and what we learn in behavioral economics is you can tell somebody all about calories, all about what's good for you, all about all these facts. So you give people facts. But then when you're actually in a state, in a hot state, right, and psychologists call it a hot state or in a state where you're hungry or in a state where you don't care anymore, then you just eat your bag of chips or your cake. You're just going to lose control of your yourself. So you can give people all these information in sex ed at school. Say, you know, you have to respect women. You have to have consensual. Uh, and you can teach all these things. But then when people are in a certain state, what are they going to do when they're in a hot state? And I think that's why diligence, the key here, what I thought, this is where, you know, it's one exploration. I'm going to come back on this theme in future books and in the future, because probably until I'm 80 years old, and maybe my boys will tell me the right answer in the future. <laughs> but for now, I was like, well, maybe diligence is the answer. You have to be so diligent at right from the start right because there's a buddhist story that says it's not about looking at the girl it's the problem say with religion putting a, a large ample cloth clothes on women is the answer no it's not because in your head are the you have to put a veil a veil on your thoughts also you have to put a you gotta veil your thoughts you understand it's like it's pre you gotta go diligence is the earlier on you have your diligence, the safer you are. Mm, fascinating. So, so that's, that's what I was trying to get at in the book. But at the same time, it's very accepting because we are human beings and we do, you know, we all have our way and we have to learn to improve our aim and learn to improve our, our diligence or our rightful action. So, so in, yeah, and another really fascinating uh Buddhist idea that you explore a lot in the text is reincarnation, which I loved the reincarnation scenes. I thought this was so well done yeah. on your part. And so in my experiences with Western people, um, you know, whenever they're looking at like Buddhist related spirituality, reincarnation doesn't seem very prominent. So like if I go to a Buddhist Sangha in my city, we don't sit around and talk about reincarnation. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't think we should either, because again, we can say we can argue about reincarnation all afternoon. Uh, people can argue about reincarnation. I like I said, I'm in forums, and some people have reincarnation. There's rebirth. There's karma. There's some people believe that there's like a same consciousness that is passed on from life to life. Uh, some people believe that there isn't the same consciousness. There's not. That's more of a Hindu belief in reincarnation. So there's lots of different ways to interpret reincarnation, how it actually works, and all that. And that's beyond our comprehension. Obviously, the reincarnation for a story it's very useful to creating interesting uh, plot lines. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, to play around with that, but I think at, in the essence, there is an importance in, to reincarnation. Just to understand that our actions, reincarnation in Buddhism is very much tied to the karmic action, right? The, you do an action, there's a reaction. And, uh, and oh, the mechanics of rebirth and what effect it will have on your future birth, that's beyond our understanding. We can create theories and have our own beliefs and it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter what we believe, the reality will be reality. But it does have an effect on our motivation. It could have an effect on our motivation. Just the fact that we have this belief in reincarnation and the, the Pali Canon states that it is fundamental to have faith in the reincarnation, to have a deep practice. And I think on that basis, so that here if we're looking at if people who are good in logic, if you want to have a deep practice, you must have um, belief in reincarnation. If you just want to practice, you don't need the belief in reincarnation. And I, uh, there's a bit of a passage in there, I almost chose that today, to, that explains why it's so important right, it, to believe in reincarnation, because uh, we have this one life right now, and we can practice, and sometimes we must we can wonder why we actually should practice but when you think of it in the reincarnation the greater scheme of things 
then we say, oh, it makes sense to practice. And then that can deepen our practice. Um, again, here, it's a bit tough in this podcast. I'm talking about it from a rational point of view. Yeah. And when you talk about it from a rational point of view, I can see already all the arguments coming at me saying, oh, no, but this is, oh, no, but that's why I like going through fiction. Because through fiction, you express a certain viewpoint. People can believe what they want. They can not take what they want. And the story can still be fun to read. So at one point I wanted to discuss, I had a blog and I wanted to discuss reincarnation in detail. And then I said, oh no, if I go into that, it's just going to raise argument after argument on my interpretation of reincarnation. Well, instead I was like, I like the practical implication of reincarnation. Yeah. And like what you said earlier is like a writing strategy as a way to move a plot forward. I mean, I think that that was, um, really my favorite part of the, why you brought it in because your characters yeah. can bring things between their lifespans. Right. right. And, and that was it, so cool. Some people will actually raise up the question, say, well, no, but in Buddhism, they don't, there's not the Atman. There's not the one consciousness that is carried forward from one life to another. But even without that, it doesn't matter because you're in this, in this lifespan, I have maybe past lives that are part of my life right now. And it doesn't mean I carried them forward as a unity, but I happen to have some of past lives that are in me now. You understand? It doesn't mean that they followed me and they're going to follow me forward. It's because you don't, you, you got to not uh, attach an identity to this, to these, uh, this stream of lives. But there is one in the end because there's a stream no matter what, right? If you follow a stream, there's not an identity at any one spot, but there's, it flows, there's still a flow. So anyways, but this is going into rationality. So just enjoy it in this story. <laughs> so jumping on from reincarnation, there cannot be a reincarnation without a death, which oh. is a concept that everybody seems to fear, dying. However, there's another line in your book that I want to, the last one I want to talk about today that really jumped out at me. And this is the line. Is it death of the body that we fear? Or the death of our unmet desires. Without desires, death brings no harm. And man, that line stood out to me, and it kicked my butt. And I was reading that line, and I read it five times in a row. So tell me about how you see death and how you managed to write such a great line in a book. Well, thanks, Greg, for that compliment. Uh, again, sometimes I, I, I finish my book and I wonder, is there any good lines in this book? Oh, man. And then I, I'm glad when, when readers uh, raise these lines that I forget about. So, yeah, it is a good line. And I'm glad you reminded me of it. Um, but, yeah, death, sure, I lost my father when I was 15. And then you ask yourself, you know, everybody. So one of the first stories I had when I was young and when I was 15 and I lost my dad to cancer I read a story about a lady who is grieving also a loss and the Buddha told the lady, I don't know if this is exactly how the story goes, but I'm sure there's many versions of it, to go find a grain of rice from every family that's not suffering a grief. And so the lady went out and couldn't find any grains of rice because everybody has is grieving somebody's death. So I was like, yeah, you know, you learn that it's not everybody goes through this and it's a tough period. And then you wonder, what? why are we so afraid of death? I'm actually not afraid of death. I would rather not die. <laughs> Personally, I would like to live and be there for my kids. And I was like, why are we so afraid of dying? And then, so it, that's just the analysis. I, I came to the analysis and I was like, why are we afraid of dying? Well, it's because I want to go biking next year and I want to go, uh, I want to be there for my kids and when I think of my dad, I like I wish my dad could see my boy. So I'm attached to that thought, and it's all right to be attached to these thoughts. And I think that's why we're afraid of dying, is because we're afraid to let go of everything. And mm-hmm. without this, with all these, all these things we hold on to, what 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 is what is death? You know, what is death? It's just a, it's a moving on, and there's we're just afraid of losing everything, of losing all these attachments. So uh, that's the way. It's so simple. I, I like how it's so simple. Yeah. But I, I think that's the way I saw it. So. 
That's so, the way I wrote it. So the time and the place of the book is not really spelled out. Why not? Because I think that the Dharma, uh, Dharma or the Dhamma of the Buddhism uh, applies everywhere and at all times. So I didn't want to create, uh, I wanted this to be like a mythology, uh, timeless, placeless. Uh, the, you know, I, I, yeah, I, that was just the way it came out. Again, it's a tough, it's a tough novel to sell. <laughs> it's a tough novel in the sense that there's not a main character, there's not a time, a place, etc. But I want, I did it on purpose because I had some people who read earlier versions and said, you know, why don't you have? Some people said it's fine, it works. Other people said you should place it somewhere. And I was like, but it doesn't go anywhere. It's it's timeless. It's just like there's no chronology. It's timeless. It's placeless. And so I stuck to that. But my next novel will be will have a t- place and a time. <laughs> well, so. and you know, one of my and what you said earlier about liking your own characters. I'm going to double down on that, and I'm also going to say that as a reader, as someone who did not write your book, I also liked the characters, and whenever they're going through painfully awkward moments, of which this book has several, very, very painfully, personally awkward moments, where you can't even imagine yourself in the situation. You know what I mean? It's so painful. Yeah. But you've I felt compassion for the characters in those moments whenever things were awful for them. Yeah, and that's what I tried. And so, you know, these stories, it's amazing. People say it and you don't realize it until you write a novel. You start a novel and eventually the novel takes over. And that's what happened here, because I was like, Oh, this I just wanted the first chapter to be difficult. <laughs> yeah. I knew at the beginning when I set up the story it was starting to be it was gonna be difficult. And then I was like, This is a story that has to be told. This is the story that's being told and that's it. This is it I, I'm looking forward to move on to my next novel. I but I enjoyed this novel and I enjoyed the characters and I'm glad you enjoyed the characters. Um, all equally. Uh in their sense, but sometimes novels take you unexpected places, and this Naked Month clearly brought me unexpected places, but I'm happy with where it brought me. So you have a lot of very deep meditation practice in the book, and a lot of very realistic description of meditation. Did you do any kind of like really deep meditation practices um, to un- to write realistically about the experiences of like long retreats and things like that? Yeah, maybe the those parts of the novel were wishful thinking. I have three young boys, so when I want to meditate, I have to get up at five in the morning. And uh, <laughs> since I have my three boys, and that doesn't happen as often I would like as I would like. So I did before having my my boys. I did meditate. I participated in. A, I would go to a Zen meditation center in Montreal, and I did a retreat, uh, a three day silence retreat silent retreat uh but i would like to meditate more but i tell myself i'll have more time when i'm uh when the boys are gone Uh, but i we can meditate every day that's what i try to do in not sitting on a cushion in my basement but in the grocery store behind a line of five people that is moving along slowly i take the time to breathe to have a good posture to follow my breath uh, on the bus on my way to work so I think you know that's the idea of meditation is you can do it anywhere any place uh, in the story people are sitting down to meditate makes it easier <laughs> but uh, yeah so I'm looking forward to get back to meditation practice I, it was a big part of my life until I had until I had my third child it was it was pretty stable but uh, with three boys Hectic, hectic life. <laughs> busy, busy days ahead. Yeah, exactly. So, Hugo, what is uh, next for you? What do you, ex- uh, what do you plan to explore in your next book? I'm, I have two short stories on uh, that I'm trying to get published that are on their way, and then I have a story that I'm very excited about that's actually very similar to the novel I spoke about earlier, uh, Silence. It's actually a. I'm trying to test. Uh, the Heart Sutra. 
So I'm trying to understand the Heart Sutra. For a long time, I've been reading the Heart Sutra. Part of my medita meditation practice, when I would only have five minutes, would be to read the Heart Sutra and uh, meditate on it for uh, for some time. And now I want to try to bring it in a situation a bit like uh, the silence with the Portuguese monk uh, in Japan, except this time it'll be a guy from Detroit going to Vietnam. So uh, a soldier from Detroit going to Vietnam who has a practice in Buddhism. So I'm looking forward to finish this novel. It'll be much more <laughs> straightforward. There'll be a place, Vietnam. There'll be a main character, a uh, young, young man from Detroit. So I, I'm looking forward to, to finish the story. It always takes much longer than anticipated. But uh, Great. Well, Hugo Bernard... Way. Thank you so much for your new book, Naked Monk. I highly recommend it. I loved it. And for any reader, like anybody who might be interested in reading it, one of the things that I got the most out of it is taking it slow. Um, like I didn't tear through your book. I took it very deliberately, and it was a uh, very rewarding payoff by going slow for me. So if you're looking for a suggestion on how to make the book um, you know, really, really impactful and powerful maybe slow down a little bit yeah um, it's interesting because uh, the people i i passed the book at first i wanted to see non-buddhists people who had no interest in buddhism so i passed the book to a couple of friends who had no interest in buddhism and they they enjoyed it they oh yeah it's nice it's fast-paced but i realized it was fast-paced because they had no interest in the buddhism yeah and then so several people like your comment is oh no take it slow and I'm glad because uh, my test readers were my beta readers were not Buddhist readers. So yeah, and I, I see I, that there's a different way to read it, but again, everybody has their their preferences. Well, yeah, and you know, I labored over some of your usage of uh, the Dhammapada and some of the chapters that really stuck out to me, and I just went slow, and I found it to be an overwhelmingly uh, positive experience. So thank you so much for spending this hour with me today. Okay, thank you, Greg. And uh, it was a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad you enjoyed the, the novel. I'm glad you took it slow because it takes us a while to write these novels. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much, sir. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Have a nice day. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.